The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. He had a wealth of information about the murders, but that's normal for a serial killer, Morris said. They remember all the details. As he talked, we couldn't let him know we were shocked, but we were amazed at some of the things he had done to his victims. We had not ever experienced this magnitude of depravity. It's not your normal homicide interrogation. He laughed and joked. He was ready to tell his story. Detective Tony Morris from Dismembered by Susan Mustafa and Sue Israel. Well, welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. I am your host, Jill, and this is episode 76, Conscience of the King, second cast part three of Dismembered by Susan Mustafa and Sue Israel. My podcast features the best of true crime books out there, updating the author's story and adding my psychological analysis. Many of us have no time to read, so I read for you. And happy Thanksgiving to you all. Holidays can be stressful, but it's my sincere wish that we all enjoy, chill out, and eat our faces off as we cheer on our teams. Love those you love and take a breather. We can all keto and cut carbs and continue dealing with life on Friday. All right, in our last two episodes, 74 and 75, we learned about the victims and how they perished, and that two serial killers were at work in the Baton Rouge area, Derek Todd Lee and Sean Vincent Gillis. It was solid police work and DNA that finally reeled Sean into custody, charging him with murder. If you haven't listened to these prior episodes, I would do so, because now we are delving into the prosecution, and it is going to take some twists and turns. With multiple murder charges pending, Sean pled guilty to the second-degree murder of Joyce Williams and was sentenced to life in prison. Next up to the legal plate was prosecutor Prem Burns. Experienced, she had been in Baton Rouge's district attorney's office since 1975 and was known as the Black Widow, who had no qualms going for the death penalty. In 2004, Prem Burns was the section chief of the Special Investigations Division of the Office of the DA for the 19th Judicial District when she was handed Sean Vincent Gillis's file. She began the longest, hardest battle she had ever fought to convict a killer. And guess who the defense attorney was? Carrie Cuccio, the same guy Prosecutor Tony Clayton faced in the previous trial. Not a fan of Mr. Cuccia's. For Cuccia, Sean's 40-hour confession was a huge hurdle, and he'd seen it, heard about the egregious actions of his client, how many women he killed. All right, he knows that Sean is guilty. Nevertheless, nevertheless, he would defend his client vigorously, as he should, and he would adopt the delay strategy once again to keep Sean off death row. 
and I still believe that this is a violation of Sean's right to a speedy trial. Just my two cents, as a non-attorney out here. Motions to quash everything that could convict Sean appeared on Prem Burns' desk. This was unconstitutional. That was unconstitutional. There was another request for reports, discovery, disclosures, inspections. By July 2, 2004, Prim Burns filed notice of intent to seek the death penalty, triggering a new barrage of motions from the defense. Cucci wanted to scrutinize every form, every report, searching for any technicality to get Sean off. In Louisiana, a first-degree murder hinges on it being committed with other felonies, like armed robbery or kidnapping, which makes it then eligible for the death penalty. So Cucci is going to challenge these felonies necessary for capital punishment in Sean's case. He demanded answers from Prem. What thing of value did Sean Gillis take in the alleged armed robbery? What dangerous weapon did Sean use to commit armed robbery? These kinds of questions. Prem realized this was war and that no detail would be overlooked. Responding with just the facts, she would be bogged down in paperwork for years. Regarding armed robbery, among the items the prosecution listed as stolen was a silver and black belt, a blanket, an earring back, Donna Bennett Johnson's severed arm, and the tattoo he had cut off her thigh. Co-defense counsel Stephen Lemoyne, no relation to Terry, Sean's girlfriend, argued that body parts have no monetary value and thus cannot be stolen. Prem reminded Judge Bonnie Jackson that body parts have value to the victims. This, this shocked me, but in a surprise ruling, Judge Jackson ruled that body parts have no monetary value. The belt and other items did, however. So let me understand this. In Louisiana, a belt has more value than an arm. Let's see how this functions in a workman's comp case when you sever a hand in a factory. If you attack me and stole my kidney, is that not valuable? Was I not robbed? Well, I think the judge is way off on this one. I get my non-attorney brain going here. Coochie also fought the kidnapping charge. There was no way to know if Sean coerced his victims or if they came of their own volition. But Burns did have evidence. Sean had written letters to Tammy Purpura. More about Tammy in a bit. The judge agreed with Burns and the kidnapping charge stood. And then the world turned upside down. Cuccia again challenged the admissibility of Sean's confession, and Judge Jackson agreed with the defense. Sean had asked for an attorney several times, so the confession was out. The jury would never see the videotape of Sean smiling, laughing, pride of the killings, the mutilations of cannibalism, the other disregard for humanity. I was outraged. But Prem Burns is a professional, and she regrouped. Her job had gotten harder, so she would work harder. The advocate reporter, Josh Noel, had interviewed Sean, who confessed to him on July 12, 2004, saying, quote, they were already dead to me, end quote, and that maybe stress had caused him to kill, 
and he hadn't killed in five years after Ann Bryan's murder because he was happy living a life with Terry. Well, Burns filed a subpoena compelling Josh Noel to testify. Burns filed a subpoena compelling Josh Noel to testify because without the confession, Noel's testimony was now of paramount importance. Judge Jackson agreed and ordered Noel to testify, limiting the scope of the information to what was published in the article. Burns also filed a prior motion asking that other prior or bad asking that other other asking that other prior bad acts be admitted into evidence to establish a pattern of behavior to establish to the jury that Sean was a methodical killer who planned each murder with care. She listed how the cases intersected. The cause of death by ligature strangulation, DNA from the hairs collected from the victims, his victimology, post-mortem dismemberment and mutilation, which established the signature of the serial killer. Recall the modus operandi is how the murder is committed and the signature is unnecessary for the killing. It is a unique psychological need that of the killer that manifests during the murder. Judge Jackson agreed and approved the prior motion. Burns chose not to include the murders of Anne Bryan or Hardy Mosley Schmidt. In these murders, there was no DNA to tie Sean to their deaths. However, a clue had been overlooked in Anne's case for a decade. In the crime scene photo from 1994, there was a zip tie. July 21st, 2008. Prem Burns was ready to try this case. She now knew the victims and their families intimately. No one deserved to die in such a horribly shocking way because a psycho developed an obsession with the dead. Reporters descended on the trial. Interesting fact, defense attorneys Cuccia and Lemoyne detested each other and were forced by the court to remain on the case even after Stephen Lemoyne filed an abusive work environment complaint. Doesn't sound like he likes Cuccia any more than I like him. Well, Judge Bonnie Jackson began the trial with Cuccia immediately expressing concern about the pre-trial press coverage, which reflected very badly on Sean. Calling the jurors, two had heard some coverage of the trial. Another saw a newspaper headline in a Walmart. Standing, Cuccia requested a change of venue even if the comments from the jurors were insignificant. Prem Burns snorted, quote, The comments were innocuous. The juries were painfully honest to even mention them, end quote. And Judge Jackson agreed with Burns, swearing in the jury. After the judge defined the charges, Burns began to describe the last moments of Donna Bennett Johnston's life. It was harrowing. She revealed all of Donna's foibles that she had methamphetamine and alcohol in her blood, three times the legal limit. A prostitute, she had battled her cocaine addiction for years, but she was also a daughter and a mother of five children. DNA taken from her severed arm was consistent with the defendants. Tire tracks were investigated, which came back to the defendant. A silver and black belt found in the van behind Sean Gillis's house 
belonged to the victim's daughter, Savannah. Pictures of the victim were deleted from his computer, and it went on and on and on, describing the mutilation Donna's body had endured in death. In letters written to Sean's jailhouse friend, here we are, Cami Purpura, while in prison, Sean confessed to the murder. Prem was limited, however, and could not tell the jury that Sean Gellis had eaten parts of his victims because that information came from his confession, ruled inadmissible. Prem closed saying, quote, This murder was well-planned, well-conceived, well-executed. In this case, armed robbery and kidnapping are both underlying felonies, end quote. And Kujia jumped up demanding a mistrial. You ruled that you cannot rob body parts. Judge Jackson denied this. Now Kuchia addressed the jury presenting his case. He was more laid back than Burns, befriending the jurors, being their buddy. Did, did jurors actually fall for this? I mean, really? Really? Using PowerPoint, he explained the critical elements of the law especially the part tying first-degree premeditated murder to underlying felonies and the death penalty. He told them that they would hear testimony about terrible happenings, deaths, and nothing indicated it was first-degree murder. All right, his priority is saving Sean's life. While this went on, Sean Gillis was excited, enjoying his day in the sun. Everyone would learn how meticulous he was when it came to butchering human beings. Strategically placing the screen, only the jurors, the judge, and the attorneys could see the crime scene photos, with Sean twisting around to make sure he got to look. Reliving his fantasies, a small smile would slip through his impassive demeanor. Jurors were obviously horrified, taken aback. One fought back tears, and some just turned away sickened. On the offensive, Prim familiarized the jury with the crime and then the victims. Crime scene tech Van Calhoun was called to the stand, speaking on the tire marks and how he tied the tire print to Sean Gallus. Jimmy Johnston, Donna's ex, testified about the affection between the two of them and their children. He had last seen her on a Monday. She'd asked for money, but he'd refused her. Had daughter Savannah and Donna shared clothes? Quote, all the time, Jimmy responded, end quote. Holding up the black and silver belt, did Jimmy recognize it as Savannah's? Yes, he'd seen her wearing it. When Cuccia spoke, he pressed, quote, how do you know that belt is Savannah's? Jimmy wavered. Uh, I think Savannah's was older and rougher looking. And Cuccia saw the opening. Is it her belt? Kuchia persisted. It looks like it is, end quote. But Jimmy didn't sound as certain as before, and Kuchia had scored a point. Donna's friends, Willie Banks and Brenda, testified as to when they last saw her and confirmed she was a sex worker who drank a lot. Brenda said she was last wearing jeans and a black belt. She told me, quote, well, if anything happens to me, tell my kids I love them. End quote. After crime scene tech Jerry Harrison testified, Burns had absolutely established that Donna was a sex worker 
who used drugs and alcohol, making all this a null point for Cuccia to attack Donna's character with. Now she could get on with the business of the trial, shining the light of truth on Sean Vincent Gillis. A bevy of witnesses testified before the jury as Prem Burns meticulously laid out her case. Outside the courtroom, the victim's family and Sean's parents, Yvonne and Norman Gillis, tried to ignore each other. Lauren Williams actually tried to talk to Yvonne to get answers she desperately needed, but Yvonne hadn't had a clue, and reporters watched it all with bated breaths. Yvonne and Norman had visited with Sean several times. Norman now believed it was his son's duty to minister to others in prison. These souls needed saving. Both he and Yvonne were terrified Sean would be put to death. Sean's girlfriend, Terry, sat with Yvonne, and the women reminisced about better days, each helping each other through the trial. James Andernan and Lauren Kelly testified about finding a body on the edge of the Ben-Hur Canal. The Goodyear manager explained that the company kept their records for seven years, and Sean had purchased his tires on June 24, 2003. FBI agent Jeff Methvin testified that he and Jeremy Shiro had met with Sean, who told them he had been to the crime scene right before Donna's body was discovered. See, this part of Sean's interview occurred prior to him asking for an attorney, so it was permitted to be used as evidence. Shown to the jury, it showed Sean smoking a cigarette, laughing and joking with detectives Brian White and Agent Jeff Methvin, explaining, quote, When you get an urge, it's one of those things. Would he be surprised to know that Donna's body was found not far from the tire tracks near the canal? No, it wouldn't. We wouldn't be talking. I knew you had my tire tracks, but she was not unloaded from my vehicle, end quote. His explanation of urinating by the canal seemed relaxed, as if he had nothing to hide. At this point, Sean was still denying killing anybody. Then Prem Burns reminded the jurors that Sean was so proud of his murders, he'd taken photos. The state's computer tech guy testified that he had found these photos of the victims on Sean's computer. The coroner, Dr. Edgar Shannon Cooper's testimony, was particularly graphic as jurors braced themselves. He recounted Donna's injuries and cause of death. The hemorrhages in her eyes pointed to strangulation. The amputation of her arm was cut perhaps with a knife or an axe that wasn't very sharp and cut post-mortem. Probably the same weapon was used on her breasts. Carrie Cuccia probed the collection of the rape kit. Couldn't the sex be consensual? Dr. Cooper was having none of it. Quote, this was a violent homicide, end quote. He shifted to questions about the time of death, which can be very difficult to pinpoint, with Dr. Cooper indicating 8 to 12 hours before Donna's body was discovered. Nicholas Murphy, a deputy with the sheriff's office, testified that he was transporting Sean in the rear of a police car when he asked Murphy if he liked to hunt or fish. Well, Murphy indicated that he did. Sitting in the back, Sean found a flex cuff, plastic strap used on larger inmates. And Sean said to Murphy, quote, that's my weapon of choice, end quote. After that, Murphy declined to speak further to Sean. 
Crime scene technician Nicole Compton testified that at Sean Gillis's home, she discovered saws, a machete, and serial killer books. She also found zip ties and the black and silver belt from the van parked behind Sean's house. On the van's passenger floorboard, which was cluttered with boxes and bags, a silver and black belt was found, and it really stuck out. Coochie objected, wanting to suppress the search warrant, and again the judge overruled him. Jimmy Johnston, Donna's ex, was in the hallway when Norman Gallus approached, head down. He apologized for what his son had done, and Jimmy extended his hand, shaking with Norman, thanking him for that. The men chatted, with every eye locked on the two of them. By the time the conversation ended, they were chatting like old friends. Across the aisle, Lauren Williams, daughter of Johnny Mae Williams, spoke with Sean's mother, Yvonne, comforting her, and then court began once more. I can only hope I would be as gracious and compassionate as these family members who are all thrown into such a horrible situation. They set an example for the rest of us. Prim Burns introduced the letters Sean had written to fellow inmate Tammy Purpura from jail. The judge explained that the jury needed to study these letters because they'd not be able to view them again during deliberations. Reading, the jurors sat upright, recognizing their importance. Quote, Tammy, you must forgive the sinner, but you may hate the sin forever. I am also a Christian, a sick, lost sheep, which through the Holy Ghost Jesus has found, too late for eight beautiful women, who for no other reason were in the wrong place at the worst time, that being when I was there. Donna's last words were, I cannot breathe. I to this day do not know why I did it. End quote. In another letter, Sean specified exactly how he picked up Donna, killed her, and dismembered her. Written in his own handwriting, there was no doubt Sean had killed Donna. How had Prem gotten the Tammy letters? Lieutenant Robert Clement, an assistant chief of security at the Baton Ridge Parish Prison, told the jurors that Pammy Papura had been arrested for prostitution. Inmates were permitted to write to each other. And Melanie Decoe, Tammy's sister, testified that Tammy had passed away from breast cancer in 2005 and that her sister loved to write on cards with her very distinct handwriting. Corporal Sherry Leader with the East Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Department explained that she was taking Tammy back and forth between the prison and court, and she patted her down, finding the letter. Quote, We usually don't take paperwork because it may be court documents, but Tammy told me what the letter was, and she asked me to do something with it. End quote. Judge Lewis Daniels, judicial assistant, then read the letter, passing it on to Judge Daniels. He made a copy of it, and he sent the original to the DA's office, where Prem Burns got a hold of it. FBI handwriting analyst Hector Ekmor Balbanio established it was Sean's handwriting, with a fingerprint expert confirming Sean's prints were on the letters. Terry Lemoyne testified next, identifying herself as Sean's common-law wife of 10 years. Yes, Sean had confessed, and he'd written the letters to Tammy 
because he wanted to say he was sorry. Had Sean showed her pictures of dead women on the internet, Terry confirmed he had twice. Now, Steve Lemoyne did the cross, first asking if they were related, and Terry did not know. He asked if she loved Sean. Yes, and she still did. Quote, I didn't believe he did it. That's not Sean. This is not the person I knew. This is someone who had a cat named Heather, end quote. Sean beamed at Terry as her testimony concluded. Adam Bench now, a forensic scientist with the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab, told the jury that the photos in Sean's car of Donna, they showed Sean's partial license plate. Well, that's either a stupid or a confident serial killer. Natasha Poe, a forensic DNA analyst, tested the rape kit, building a DNA profile, sperm, seminal fluids, blood, and a pubic hair. She found a mixture of DNA. Part was Donna Bennett Johnston's, and the other matched Sean Gellis. Had she tested the belt? Yes, there was a partial match, a mix of two people, with Sean Gellis not excluded. Kuchia asked, did it have Donna's DNA on it? And Poe replied, no, it had not. Donna's daughter, ninth grader Savannah Johnston's testimony came next. Blonde ponytail swinging sideways, her eyes widened with anxiety as she was sworn in. She identified the belt as hers. When had she seen it last? Quote, I saw it on the last day I saw my mother before I went to school. It was in my closet. My mom was my size and she borrowed or took my clothes. End quote. And the state rested. Kuchia's defense presented Donna Bennett Johnston's arrest reports for drugs and prostitution, which I find reprehensible. Shortly after noon, Judge Jackson announced, quote, We will recess until tomorrow. There's a constitutional issue that must be addressed before I can give the jury instructions. End quote. The state had appealed Judge Bonnie Jackson's decision regarding whether strangulation was a separate act apart from kidnapping. The judge would receive the decision in the morning. So, the next day, Prem Burns' closing argument summarized all the evidence, 198 physical exhibits, with 10 definitely proving the crime. Sean had taken souvenirs to relive the murder and sick fantasies, the photos, the belt, which he'd stolen from Donna, even after her death, a robbery. Find him guilty of first-degree murder. Kujia began by admitting that Sean killed Donna Bennett Johnston. What he argued was, this was not first-degree murder. He explained, quote, An intentional killing, no matter how brutal, shocking, offensive, bad, is not first-degree murder. In Louisiana, first-degree murder must be coupled with a plus factor. The killing was done by perpetrating a kidnapping and armed robbery, end quote. He further argued that armed robbery must be a separate and distinct act, taking something of value by force. We don't know if Mr. Gellis committed armed robbery. Would he kill someone for that black and silver belt? It was in the van, 
not stored as if it were some precious item. This is just not logical. He reminded the jury that Jimmy Johnson vacillated as to whether or not it was or wasn't his daughter's belt. And Donna's DNA was not on it. Wouldn't her hands have been all over this belt? Is this enough to convict a man of first-degree murder? No. This is called reasonable doubt. Prem followed, highlighting the best evidence against Sean Gellis, his own words, the photos of Donna wearing the belt in the trunk, the same belt that was in his vehicle, the proof was in the pudding. Judge Jackson read her instructions to the jury. Kidnapping was separate and apart from the act of strangulation as she was handed a note and then continued reading her instructions. At 1.15 p.m., the jury began their deliberations. And the note she was handed. What she did not tell the jury is the First Circuit Court of Appeals had just reversed her decision on the definition of second-degree kidnapping. So literally, the law changed in the middle of her instructions. What did this mean? The higher court ruled that strangulation was a part of kidnapping and that it did not have to be a separate and distinct act. Now, for the jury, this could be the difference between first and second degree murder and whether the death penalty applied. After the jury exited, she announced the reversal. Predictably, Cuccia requested a mistrial, but Burns argued that a mistrial could only hurt the prosecution. Quote, double jeopardy has attached, and she was willing to take a chance that the jury would find kidnapping separate from the murder. Cuccia's motion was denied. End quote. At 4.15 p.m., the jury asked for the definition of second-degree kidnapping and armed robbery again. Judge Jackson brought the jury back in and read them the new definition, and evidently the jury didn't pick up on the change, nor did she tell them. An hour later, at 5.15, a verdict was reached. As the family shook with tension, the foreman spoke, quote, We, the jury, find Sean Vincent Gellis guilty of first-degree murder, end quote. Everyone sagging with relief. It was a unanimous decision as well, not required in Louisiana. Virginia Valentine, the sister of Lillian Robinson, began to cry thanking Jesus. Justin Bennett and Jimmy Johnston hugged each other, and this was a victory for all of Sean's victims. But it wasn't over. Stephen Lemoyne, more easygoing and far less abrasive than Terry Cuccia, would handle the penalty phase of the trial. And worse was to come. So the next day, the penalty phase began, with both sides of the families uttering very different prayers concerning Sean's fate. Prem Burns argued that one aggravating circumstances was required to impose the death penalty. They had two, armed robbery and kidnapping. She told the jury about victim Catherine Hall, her body found in 1999, nude, zip tie around her neck, dumped next to a dead end sign. A pubic hair on her belonged to Sean Gillis. Four years later, 
Johnny Mae Williams was found by a 14-year-old boy. A body hair on her matched Sean Gillis's DNA. Quote, Sean Vincent Gillis is pure evil, and he deserves the maximum penalty recognized by Louisiana law. End quote. Stephen Lemoyne asked them all to keep their minds open. He presented the family background to the jury, stressing that Sean's father, Norman, was mentally ill and had abandoned the young family when Sean was an infant. Yvonne had struggled, but didn't do very well with Sean. All right, whoa, stop. Spin alert. That is not the case. That is not the impression I have from Yvonne, from Sean himself, or Sean's friends. I think this is a case of pants on fire. Stephen asked the jury, is Sean mentally ill? These crimes aren't for personal gain. Sean struggled and struggled to suppress the urges. In his letters, he says he couldn't help himself. Is that a mental defect? Does pure evil confess? As Sean grinned through all of this, because if his attorneys could convince the jury he was mentally ill, he couldn't be executed under Louisiana law. Over the next few days, Prim Burns called the victim's family to testify, and the pain was wrought. She wanted the jury to know how much Donna Bennett Johnston was loved by her family. Natasha Poe returned to the stand to connect the DNA dots between the three women and Sean Gellis. As a doctor explained the cutting injuries, Sean became very upset, jerking, talking loudly, creating a disturbance, and Cuccia couldn't shut him up, so a recess was granted. An hour later, a now-medicated Sean watched calmly. On exiting the court that day, Terry Lemoyne was upset and shaking. Quote, I do not believe I know that man up there. I do not know that man. End quote. She had finally accepted the truth, and I'm glad she got there. The advocate reporter, Josh Knoll, came to the stand, giving limited testimony about Sean's confessing to him. Why had Sean killed his friend, Johnny Mae Williams? Sean explained to him that he felt contempt for her becoming hooked on crack, and he just couldn't hold himself back. While he regretted the murder, quote, he said that if untreated medically, he would be at risk to kill again, but if treated medically, he would not kill again, end quote. The defense called Yvonne Gillis to the stand. She said that Sean had been a good son, a good reader, and that she'd raised him to be a good Catholic, doing the best she possibly could. She spoke of divorcing Norman after he threatened to kill Sean and how Sean learned that his father was a homosexual, which deeply troubled him. Prem asked Yvonne about Sean's medical history. Had Sean ever been knocked out as a kid? Any injuries? Yvonne recalled two. Climbing the stairs, he hit his head, with the doctor determining it was no big deal, and he popped his knee out playing basketball. Had he fallen on a drain pipe, knocking himself out when he was 10? No. At 14, had he had an accident at school and been knocked out? No. Had Yvonne spanked Sean? One time, with a thin belt, and she didn't like it, so instead she's taken privileges away as a punishment. Had Norman ever molested Sean? Appalled, Yvonne gasped 
No, of course not. Did Sean sleepwalk? Once, but she'd put him back to bed. Did he mention being watched by ghosts or vampires? No, never. Mentioned ants in his brain? No. After Sean's cousin testified to his normal, non-violent kind of childhood, a teacher from his high school days said that Sean may have been a bit lonely as a kid and he'd speak to him about Star Trek. Best buddy John Green spoke about Sean being alone as a kid while Yvonne worked and how he was more adult due to that. Another pal, John Roses, testified that they'd grown up together, been very close, and how he was such a good godfather to John's daughter, Christine. Goddaughter Christine testified about how much she loved Sean. And then suddenly, she said, Sean told her his father molested him as his mother watched after she'd shared her own story about being molested with Sean. Furious at recess, a crying Yvonne went to speak with Christine and Ken Cuccia. Quote, I can't believe you said that. That is not true. End quote. Cuccia tried to appease her, but Yvonne was having none of it. Terry testified that she had had sex with Sean at most four times in ten years. He was constantly on the computer, which is really a huge red mountain. Ask questions, murder bookies. Prim asked if Sean had ever had a seizure. No, no. Had he discussed ants, worms, or implants in his brain? Had he beaten her? Terry said no to all of it. So all these questions about being knocked unconscious, ants, worms, was laying the background for psychiatric experts who'd assessed Sean Gillis. Dr. Thomas Reedy, a forensic psychologist who had never examined Sean, testified about violent risk assessment. Uh, did Dr. Reedy know Sean killed three women? No, he hadn't read the case file. All right, so as a juror, why would I care about this man's testimony when he hadn't even read the case file? Just saying. He's assessing risk and not knowing the guy is a serial killer. All right, well, anyway, Dr. Reedy concluded that based on statistical probability, it was unlikely that Sean would be violent in prison if allowed to live. Next came Dr. Ruben Gurr, a neuropsychologist, who testified about functional MRIs, which show which areas of your brain are most active mapping your brain activity. Dr. Gurr concluded that Sean had an abnormal amygdala, which is the emotion center of the brain, occipital lobe, the visual center, and corpus callosum, the thick fiber network of nerves that connects the right and left hemispheres of the brain, it was smaller than normal, similar to those with schizophrenia. Sean also had schizoaffective disorder. Dr. Gurr also admitted that he had not examined Sean either, short of reading the functional MRI. And yes, he thought Sean could potentially be a violent loner, withdrawn, and not a social guy all of which contradicts Dr. Reedy's testimony, and Prem just tore this guy apart. Dr. Dorothy Lewis was the last defense witness. With an impressive pedigree from prestigious colleges, Dr. Lewis traveled the country, testifying in court for capital cases with killers on trial. For example, 
she testified for Arthur Sharcross, a serial killer responsible for 11 murders in New York State. Dr. Lewis's testimony caught everyone by surprise, and I'm included in that. She had spent 26 hours with Sean Gillis, and her team of neurologists, psychologists, and radiologists reviewed his records dating back to his school years. Plus, she reviewed Norman Gellis's mental health records, hospitalization, suicidal ideation, and sexual identity confusion. Sean's grandmother, Norman's mother, had been in and out of mental hospitals. Sean's great-grandmother likely had schizophrenia and was implicated in her husband's death by poisoning, but was never prosecuted. Sean admitted to mood swings, indicating bipolar disorder. And then she recounted the multiple head injuries that Sean had sustained, hitting his head on the table as a toddler, going to the hospital, sustaining damage to his frontal lobe. Somewhere between the ages of 10 and 14, Sean fell on a storm pipe, injuring himself, plus another later while playing basketball when he was knocked unconscious. The recent MRIs and PET scans indicated deficiencies in the frontal lobe complicated by his migraines, seizures, and dissociative identity disorder. Okay, that is a lot. Quote, by this time, the state's experts sitting in the front row were having difficulty containing their laughter as Dr. Lewis cheerfully rolled out her laundry list of disorders, end quote. But Dr. Lewis continued. She said, quote, Sean believes a worm has infiltrated his brain. He thinks he has ants in his brain. He says the government has devised a way to teleport people to other geographical locations. And he believes he is a high-ranking officer on a mission only he knows about, end quote. Oh my, has Dr. Lewis heard of Sean and his love for Star Trek? Well, this one made me laugh out loud. She also contends that Sean has a strong female self that lives inside of him called Goldilocks. I know. Quote, Sean hates this part of himself. On more than one occasion, he has said, I'll rape her. I'll kill her. Sean often refers to himself in the third person. He calls himself Bobby. He says things like, I don't want Bobby in my head. He says things like, this is Admiral Sean Gellis, end quote. Terry laughed, later saying that this was all bullshit. Quote, that's hilarious. I have never heard Sean mention Goldilocks. If he told his psychiatrist that, he was screwing with her. Smiling, she said, that they referred to each other as Starfleet admirals. It was their way of communicating. And did Dr. Lewis think she was crazy too? End quote. Lewis concluded saying that Sean has schizoaffective disorder. All right, for the record, this is madness. And on a positive fun fact, in this trilogy, part one, Wolf in the Fold, part two, Devil in the Dark, and this episode, Conscience of the King, these names come from Star Trek, the original series that deal with a serial killer, a murder investigation, and mass death. I grew up watching the reruns, and I always rooted for the bad guys to get caught. Hence, I adopted these names for the episodes on Dismembered, where this repulsive serial killer was captured, 
and is never going to kill another woman, ever. So I thought you'd like a little insight into how my mind works. Haha. <laughs> okay, so back to penalty phase. With the goal of discrediting Dr. Lewis, Prem Burns asked her how many serial killers she had evaluated. Answer, 22. When asked to define sociopaths, Lewis hesitated, saying she'd have to look it up in the dsm 4 the Psychological Bible of Disorders at the time. Given a copy, looking it up, Lewis struggled to find it, and Burns suggested she check under antisocial personality disorder. Huh. Quote, Here it is. It is a pervasive pattern of disregard for and the violation of the rights of others that begins in childhood or early adolescence and continues into adulthood. End quote. I'm so glad the expert professional was able to find it when pointed out where it was. Prem asked if there was a record of any of the injuries that Sean claims to have experienced in childhood. Dr. Lewis replied, no, there were no records of this. Got it. Prem read from one of Dr. Lewis's reports on the supposed incident when Sean was 10. Quote, according to his sister that was there, End quote. Uh, did Dr. Lewis know that Sean was an only child? Dr. Lewis said it was a misstatement. Burns asked about his female persona, and Dr. Lewis explained that his voice modulated from a male voice to a high-pitched feminine voice saying, quote, between us girls, end quote. Well, that is definitive psychological proof of having a split personality, right? No. Dr. Lewis also testified that Terry Lemoyne's epilepsy prevented her from remembering having sex with Sean and his beating her up. Well, had she examined Terry Lemoyne? Uh, no, no, she hadn't. Whoa. Report by prison physician Dr. Blanche, dated March 17, 2005, says that Sean had no psychotic symptoms in evidence, but he complained of headaches. Dr. Lewis stated, quote, Dr. Blanche recognized the disorder, but bent over backwards to do what the prison wanted. Isn't that sad? End quote. Dismissed, when Dr. Lewis left the stand, a reporter whispered to another, quote, Thank God that fruitcake is off the stand. At least the jury won't buy a word of that. End quote. To refute the insanity that Dr. Lewis spouted, Prem Burns called Dr. Donald Hoppy, who was one of those guilty of chuckling during her testimony. A clinical psychologist of 27 years, he didn't think Dr. Lewis's opinion was correct, citing the great number of diagnoses she had offered, six in all. He believed it was impossible for a 37-year-old man to pass through life with all these undetected disorders he'd be unlikely to stand up, let alone live a productive life. Paraphrasing Dr. Hoppy, quote, Sean has symptoms of Asperger's syndrome, emotional neglect considered odd by his peers and can relate to adults better than his peers. He's being well-versed on narrow, esoteric topics and interests. With Sean, it was Star Trek. There is compartmentalization. Very often, they have a facade, and they become very good at play-acting. There is usually moodiness, a low tolerance for stress, and substance abuse. 
in Sean's case, marijuana. Those with Asperger's also tend to avoid sex because it's too complicated emotionally. Dr. Hoppe mentioned he had treated a patient who was obsessed with hands, so Sean's fascination with body parts is symptomatic. Dr. David Lillian testified on nuclear medicine, so functional MRIs, PET scans, etc. After injecting a radioactive form of sugar into Sean, the tests were conducted, and looking closely, Dr. Lillian found no substantive cerebral abnormalities. Dr. Marjan Bardasudharma, a neurologist from LSU Health Center, also testified. He'd reviewed a scan of a man named John Doe and found zero brain abnormalities. This was Sean's scan. The last witness was Norman Gellis, because if anyone could convince the jury that Sean was crazy, it was his dad. Norman painstakingly conveyed how he spent years in mental institutions and received all kinds of treatment. He had come to God and become more accepting of who he is today at age 72. Prem asked Norman if he knew where Norman was on January 4, 1999, or October 11, 2000, or February 27, 2004. He was out murdering women. Norman just looked down, and the defense rested. In Louisiana, with back roads, mud, alligators in the bayou, there is also an eye-for-an-eye mentality. If Sean Gillis got the death penalty, they'd inject him with drugs that lulled him to sleep and would push him to death. He'd never know the terror of breath cut off, cord clamped tight about the neck, pressure building in your head, behind your eyes, and then nothing. He'd never know the fear of fists beating, knives slicing until death occurred. He'd never be humiliated and posed naked, exposed for the world to see. He would never be eaten out of curiosity. The jury had to know that Sean was a sociopathic serial killer, but not that he'd murdered eight women, though it was hinted at in the letters. They had only presented evidence on three in court. The family's victims were confident that he would get the death penalty. Back in court, their bond was strong as they greeted each other with hugs of support. Holding hands, they prayed. During closing arguments, Sean lost control again, screaming at Cuccia, who was again granted a recess. Sean was escorted from the court, his steps unsteady. And then the case went to the jury who had to consider the aggravating and mitigating circumstances. Aggravating circumstances are the heinousness of the crime, the intent of the crime, if someone were injured during the crime, past convictions, and the like. Mitigating circumstances could be things like no prior violent history, the influence of mental illness, influence exerted by another person, or if the offender thinks their acts are morally justified. In weighing this, the jury's vote for the death penalty must be unanimous. They were also free to choose life in prison as well. Two hours and 42 minutes later, at 5.45 p.m., the jury came back as family members gripped each other's hands tightly. The foreman announced, quote, 
we cannot reach a verdict, end quote. Judge Jackson asked Sean to rise and sentenced him to life in prison without the benefit of parole as a collective gasp filled the courtroom. What? What? They had only been out two hours and 42 minutes. Any other judge would have sent them back to deliberate more after a pep talk. But Judge Jackson was against the death penalty, so she wasn't going along with the usual game plan when faced with a hung jury. The families went into shock. So many dead. Why was he spared? Sean Gillis cried and hugged Terry Cuccia. Terry Lemoyne hugged Yvonne Gillis, who slipped out to call Norman. Lauren Williams comforted her brother Larry, who was racked with painful sobs. He just couldn't believe it. Virginia Valentine and Patricia Dawson were furious. Quote, I see an evil, wicked man there. I saw him laughing in there. But this isn't funny. He who lives by the sword should die by the sword. End quote. I honestly can't believe this. They should have been allowed to deliberate longer. Um, I haven't been thrilled with Judge Jackson, but wow, I am really not a fan. Prem felt she let the families down. A serial killer had escaped a death penalty on her watch in a state known for vindictive justice. She had underestimated the jury. She had believed that they would see through Dr. Lewis's testimony, and she was wrong. They had looked at the photos of Carnage and thought only a crazy man could do something like this. A glowing Caricuccia and Stephen Lemoyne proudly went to speak with the reporters. Sean's next trial was to begin in a Lafayette courtroom on February 17, 2009. Only Sean decided to plead guilty to the first-degree murder of Marilyn Nevels. He received another life sentence, and this was his last trial. He will never leave prison. Since the trial, Terry Lemoyne has had zero contact with Sean, and that's a relief. She and Lewis are happy together, living in the same house where Sean butchered his victims. I would probably have made another choice, but as long as they are happy. Trying to explain Sean Vincent Gillis's behavior is a tall order. There is evidence that nature and nurture both play a role. Mental illness ran in Sean's family. Genetics may play a role in this as well, and the environment can trigger certain genes that may manifest growing up. Yvonne was a devoted mother who barely spanked her son, so the nurture argument doesn't seem quite valid. Quote, whatever triggered him, at 32, Sean turned into a vicious killer who enjoyed the death, the blood, the mutilation, and the sex. End quote. Necrophilia. Most people assume that necrophiliacs who have a sexual attraction to cadavers work in funeral parlors to have access to dead bodies. Perverse and repulsive, this is regular necrophilia. Some in the psychological community believe it is more widespread than we think. Type 2 necrophilic fantasy occurs when one fantasizes about sex with a corpse but doesn't act on it. Now, this really can't be documented for obvious reasons. 
The third type of necrophilia is rare, and it is the one that Sean Gillis exhibits, necrophiliac homicide, murder to obtain a dead body for sexual gratification. Very few serial killers do this. Arrested in 1973, Ed Kemper, the co-ed killer, murdered his grandparents when he was 15. Years later, leaving California's Atascadero Psychiatric Hospital, he embarked on a string of murders, killing and enjoying sex with corpses, which included his mother's. He dismembered and beheaded. He only admitted to eating two of his victims, wanting to possess them, like Sean. Ted Bundy abducted, raped, abused, and murdered, then raped the dead bodies of his victims, sometimes over and over. He did not mutilate as Sean Gallus did, though he took skulls. The Russian Rostov Ripper, Andrei Chikatilo, abducted and killed 52 people, mostly children, viciously debasing their bodies with his bare hands, practicing necrophilic homicide. Kemper, Bundy, and Chikatilo were all rage-driven. Sean Gellis is different in that he's not driven by anger. He had a morbid curiosity about death and mutilation, a compulsion that was beyond his control. While it was purely sexual, he is an act-focused serial killer, meaning death came extremely fast for his victims, versus a process-focused serial killer who can strangle and revive victims over and over, torturing them. Sean Gellis is far sicker, more twisted, and cold, and he has more in common with Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer picked up men in gay bars, becoming obsessed with his victims. He claimed to love them and did not want them to ever leave him, so he killed them. He also masturbated with body parts like Sean Gellis. Police found a head in Jeff Dahmer's refrigerator, skulls in the closet, and a variety of body parts stashed throughout his apartment. Dahmer enjoyed dismembering, something he got into as a child inspecting roadkill. Curious, he also wanted to see, to feel the insides of victims, like Sean. He was fascinated with the process and kept the skulls because they, quote, represented the true essence of his victims, end quote. This largely mirrors Sean, except for the love. Gallus did not love his victims. Emotionality did not play a role. The other taboo, cannibalism, is sporadically practiced in some cultures around the world. In the United States, it is almost entirely practiced by serial killers. The reasons why. Research tells us that for some, Violating the cannibalistic taboo results in a state of euphoria. Others experience sexual climax, and yet for others, it's viewed as a source of power. Curiosity can drive some, like Sean Gellis. And finally, Sean wanted to possess his victims forever, so he consumed human flesh. Now there are differences. Unlike Sean, who was arrogant and proud, relishing in his sadistic brutality, Dahmer was regretful and embarrassed to admit cannibalism. Dahmer told the police that, quote, It's hard for me to believe that a human being could have done what I've done, but I realize what I've done is my guilt, end quote. Sean Gellist was boastful, 
laughing and joking has recounted the tale of murder and mangling. When confessing to cannibalism, sheepish, Sean acted like a little boy caught breaking a rule. He wrote to another inmate, admitting, quote, I don't know what my damage is. I don't even know if there's a name for it, end quote. Sean's father and Jeff Dahmer's mother had had nervous breakdowns. Sean was an infant when his parents divorced. Jeff Dahmer was 18. But when Sean was 18, he discovered his father was gay, causing issues for Sean. And they both felt abandoned when their mothers moved away. Jeff's to Chippewa Falls and Sean's to Atlanta. I think this is partially where the cannibalism stems from. Fear, anxiety of being left alone, eating their victims means they possess them forever. Both men drank heavily. Dahmer to block out urges and memories of what he'd done. Sean, because he's a hedonist who enjoys pleasure, partying, and smoking weed with his friends. Where Dahmer ate the ones he liked the most, Sean was emotionally flat. Quote, they were already dead to me. End quote. Dahmer kept souvenirs and trophies of his victims, largely because he lived alone. Sean lived with Terry, maintaining his great guy persona. So imagine if Sean had lived alone, given this guy's propensity to leave dead bodies in the trunk until Terry noticed the stench of decomposition. So oof. But both Dahmer and Sean played games with their cadavers, so we can only imagine that this would have been worse had there not been a Terry. But in my opinion, Sean is also reminiscent of Jack the Ripper, the unsolved 1888 case from London, England. When looking at the Ripper's treatment of his victims, also sex workers, there are similarities. The most glaring comparison is with Jack's final victim, Mary Jane Kelly. Gaining access to Mary's rented room, Jack the Ripper had all the time he wanted. Act-focused, he killed her quickly, slashing her throat and inflicting horrible indignities to her corpse. From her autopsy report, quote, The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition. The tissues of the neck were severed all the way down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts, the uterus and kidneys, with one breast under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side, and spleen by the left side. The flaps removed from the abdomen and the thigh were on a table. The pericardium was open below, the heart absent. End quote. Like Sean, he cut circular incisions around the breasts, often severing them completely, like with Catherine Hall. Jack the Ripper cut Mary Kelly's left calf, deep through muscles, from knee to ankle, and doing similar to her arms and forearm. We know that Sean did similar things. Did Jack rape or practice necrophilia? The evidence is scant given this occurred before fingerprints or rape kits were a thing. However, the victims were found with legs splayed apart, posed to shock, similar to Sean's posing of the victims. So while we don't know for sure, I think Jack the Ripper either did rape or used his knife to penetrate women, a substitute phallus of sorts, getting very Freudian. So, Sean Gallus has Asperger's and is nothing but a common lust killer with obsessive-compulsive disorder to mutilate. While the brutality is notable, 
he's just another serial killer. Today, in 2023, according to Ken Pasterick, the Communications Director for the Department of Public Safety and Corrections, Sean Gellis is in preventive segregation in Louisiana State Penitentiary at his request. Pasterick told A&E True Crime his presence in general population is a, quote, danger to the good of the order and discipline of the facility and or whose presence poses a danger to himself, other offenders, staff, or the general public, end quote. Sean also doesn't work due to security issues, and while he has the option of taking classes, he does not choose to. Remember, he was never a good student. He spends 22 to 23 hours a day in his cell. In correspondence with others, Sean says he's remorseful, but he also told Prem Burns that he wanted to have sex with his mother, the mom who doted on him as a boy, and he raged for days after she left him to go to Atlanta, when he was in his 30s. His fixation with pornography grew, and he began peeping in the neighbor's windows, caught by neighbor Carolyn Clay's daughter-in-law. This is reminiscent of Ted Bundy, who began his infamous career as a serial killer, following the same pattern. Dismembered ends with a commentary by Susan Mustafa, who recounts the other serial killers who were in the Baton Rouge area. DNA would link Derek Todd Lee to murders, and on May 27, 2003, Derek Todd Lee was arrested. August 10, 2004, a jury convicted Lee of second-degree murder of Geraldine DeSoto. Another jury found him guilty of killing Charlotte Murray Pace. DNA has linked Lee to five more murders. They were Randy Meberner, Gina Green, Pam Kinnamore, Trinisha Colm, and Carrie Yoder, all of whom were killed between 1998 and 2003. Zachary Chief of Police David McDavid, poor guy, told The Advocate in 2016 that, quote, we believe in our hearts that he killed Connie Werner, but we can't prove it, end quote. Derek Todd Lee died from heart disease on January 21st, 2016. And I wonder how that final sentencing went. Hmm? But there was a third serial killer in Baton Rouge hiding in the shadows. Jeffrey Lee Guillory, the prostitute killer. He would pose bodies naked, legs spread, humiliating the women in death. This posing would link his crimes and is his signature. In September 2006, Guillory was pulled over for a traffic stop in Baton Rouge and his fingerprints were taken. These prints matched those on a beer can found at the scene of Sylvia Cobb's 2001 murder. And although Guillory had a considerably long criminal history that included burglary, first-degree robbery, drugs, and forgery convictions, there was not enough evidence in Sylvia Cobb's case to prosecute him. In the recent Oxygen series, Serial Killer Capital, Baton Rouge, which I highly recommend, Sergeant Don Kelly of the Baton Rouge Police Department explains that 15 months later, December 2007, Guillory attacked a Lafayette woman, Johnny Martinez, at a bus stop. Grabbed Dragged into the bushes, he strangled her with the strap of her purse. Cocky, thinking she was dead, Guillory left her there, but Johnny survived. Arrested on February 2nd, 2010, Guillory was convicted of attempted robbery 
and the attempted murder of Johnny Martinez and sentenced to 50 years in prison. The Martinez arrest also led to Guillory's DNA being taken and processed, which linked him to the murders of Florida Edwards and Renee Newman. Tried for Renee's death, the jury of six women and six men deliberated for just over 50 minutes before returning its unanimous guilty verdict, which pleased Prosecutor Dana Cummings greatly. He was sentenced to another life sentence. Ironically, Guillory's defense team tried to pin the murders on Sean Vincent Gillis. Huh, didn't work. And these three serial killers still do not account for all of the women missing and murdered at that time in the Baton Rouge area. Susan Mursafa shares a personal story as well. Her sister-in-law, Sherry, was raped and murdered in Baton Rouge at age 18. She was walking to a nearby store and vanished. Her body was found on Thanksgiving, two bullet holes in the back of her head. By the time police had a suspect, her rape kit had been lost, so this guy continues to walk among the unsuspecting public. Susan writes, quote, I urge women and men everywhere to be vigilant, to take self-defense classes, and to be careful when someone approaches. Even seemingly nice, normal-looking people can be killers. Do not live in fear, but be aware and be certain that the Sean Gillises in the world live quietly among you, end quote. And again, this is the lesson from this story, along with do not do drugs because it never goes well. And this wraps up Dismembered by Susan Mustafa and Sue Israel, one of the most disturbing books I've presented to you. And I still advise you to read the book. And I want to thank my Patreon members for helping pick my next book, which is Click, Click, Click by my friends from the Sugar Coated Murder podcast, Ann Varner and Karen Devaney, on a very personal murder case from their hometown. These ladies inspire me, not only doing the podcast, but writing this book, which is part of their Say My Name series, focusing on remembering victims. How does a small-town, good-natured teen land on a kill list? A toxic friendship out of control results in murder. On a clear Friday night, three classmates gather, a shot rings out, and one is dead, but no one knows for over two years. This is the story of teenage rebellion gone unchecked and a deadly collaboration, and the plan where there was no turning back once it was set in motion. Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. I see you as you hear me. Please take a few minutes to leave an awesome review that will help me make new Murder Bookies. Share your thoughts with me at Jill at Murder Shelf Book Club on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and join Patreon for $4 a month. New fall and winter designs are out on Spreadshop, so get your merch. The holidays are coming fast. Links are on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com with sources, photographs, show notes, our snack recipe, and wine pairing too. Always trust your gut and lock your doors and windows. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved, music by Carl Hosena, and lyrics by Otto Harbaugh.